Good morning, brothers and sisters. Please open in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 18. And as you were turning there, I would invite you to stand once again for the reading of God's holy word. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. And I'm going to read in your hearing, verse 15 through verse 22. Let us give our attention now to the word of the Lord. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let him not hear again, let me rather not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, That is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Please find your seats once again, brothers and sisters. For me, it was back in September. That's actually when it hit me. That's when I realized that Christmas was upon us. How did I come to this revelation, you ask? Well, I was in the middle of the Fred Meyer in Richland on September 20th, which is technically still summer, I should point out. When I turned the corner, and there it was, all of the Christmas trees and the lights and the decorations, they were all out on full display. I kind of meandered back to my wife, and I sat down there at the Starbucks inside of Fred Meyer, and I thought about that for longer than I care to admit. I thought about the whole consumeristic side of Christmas. And as I sat there, I realized that at one level, it seems Christmas seems to begin earlier and earlier every single year. I realize in saying that, I sound like an old man. But then at the same time, I also realized how quickly Christmas seems to come and go. Aside from the department stores and their desire to get in our wallets, I think for most of us, if we think about it, Christmas happens pretty fast, right? Christmas morning rolls around, very quickly packages are opened. I think for many families, the whole thing starts and ends within an hour. In a lot of ways, it's sort of anticlimactic. Well, what I want to try to do is help all of us slow down a little bit this Advent season. You see, Advent, or Christmas if you like, is much more than tearing through wrapping paper and running up credit card debt. Truth be told, Christmas has really little to do with any of that type of stuff. 
Advent is much deeper. It's much more profound. It's, it's much more glorious. So here's my aim. Rather than set aside one day, Christmas morning, I want us to set aside this entire month. I want us to see that Advent is more than a day. In fact, it is a season. It's a season that is meant for reflection. A season meant for reverence. Or if I can use this metaphor, rather than you and I just dip our toe in, or rather than you and I just very quickly sort of run in and cannonball in the deep end of Christmas and then pop back out very quickly, rather than any of that, I want us to soak in Advent, which I think will be conducive to further reflection and further reverence. So at Redeeming Grace, all this month, we are going to, by God's grace, set our affections on Advent. Now, with that being said, I realize that I have used a word uh, uh, repeatedly already this morning that might not be immediately, immediately understandable, and that is the word Advent. Advent comes from a Latin word meaning coming. And in this context, we are talking about the advent or the coming of Jesus Christ to earth. So again, that will be our focus in December. More specifically, we are going to view the glory and the beauty and the humility of advent by seeing how really advent is the coming of prophet, priest, king, and God. So that's the direction we are heading. Christmas is about how Christ, who is perfect prophet, priest, king, and God, Christmas is about how Christ has come to us. And with this being the first Sunday of December, we are going to give our attention to Christ as prophet. Now, very quickly, we would do well to note the, the significant role that the prophet played in the life of the people of God throughout Old Testament history. We have to understand, before we even begin to broach the idea of prophet, what a prophet was. And so, in short, a prophet was the mouthpiece of God. The prophet was someone who spoke on behalf of God, who spoke the very words of God. So much so that when you heard audibly the, the voice of the prophet, what you actually were hearing were the words of God. Meaning, if you wanted to know the mind or the will of God, then you would have to hear and heed the prophets of God. And so we have to understand that, that the prophet at this level is indispensable in the life of the Old Covenant people of God. Now, if I were to ask you, who was the most notable of all of these Old Testament prophets? Who would you say? Who stands out as the prophet? And the answer, of course, is Moses. Moses was the quintessential prophet of the Old Testament. And yet, as our passage reveals this morning, Moses looked forward to the advent of a prophet greater than himself. 
That's really the weight of the passage in front of us. Moses prophesies the advent of not just another prophet, but of the prophet of Christ himself. Now to wrap our heads and hearts around this, we need to understand three basic marks of a prophet. Let me give them to you and then we will flesh them out. First, prophets are sent by God. Second, prophets speak for God. And third, prophets are to be submitted to as God. To begin, prophets are sent by God. Moses, looking forward to this final prophet, says in verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Or if you look at verse 18, this same promise is repeated in different words. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, God says. So catch this. As great as Moses was, there was one coming after him. As big as Moses' shoes were to fill, God is going to send a massive, wonderful prophet. Notice second that prophets speak for God. Remember, baked right into the idea of a prophet is the reality that they speak on God's behalf. And of course, we see that thrust here. Consider the end of verse 15, where we read of this coming prophet, it is to him you shall listen. You better listen to what he says. Verse 18 ups the ante. Look at the end of verse 18. We are told that he, and, and that is the prophet here, he shall speak to them all that I command him. So this prophet is going to speak all that God commands him to speak. Meaning that this prophet will not share his own opinions, nor will he just sort of pontificate about this or that. He's not going to raise his voice merely for the sake of being heard. But he, like Moses, will speak the very words of God. Again, this is what prophets did. And then third, this coming prophet must be submitted to as God. Why must his message be heard and heeded, you ask? Well, for this reason. Because it is not simply his message. As the middle of verse 18 testifies, God says, and I will put my words in his mouth. So who are the words of this prophet? Well, those are the words of God himself. Or look at verse 19. And whoever will not listen to my words, God says, that he shall speak in my name. Right? Whoever will not listen to my words, God says, that are spoken to them through the lips of the prophet... I myself will require it of him. You catch the tone? By ignoring the words of this prophet, God says you are ignoring him. So here's the deal. According to Deuteronomy 18, we do not have the luxury of merely brushing off the words of this prophet. Nor can we remain indifferent or unmoved. 
the tone is one in which we must hear and heed these words, and, and therefore we must align our lives accordingly around the words of this prophet. Which is really just another way of saying that we cannot treat the words of this prophet the way we treat Carlons. You know what I mean? I got my license back in the 90s, and this is also when car alarms were all the rage. And so it wasn't uncommon. In the mid-90s, you would, you would hear a car alarm go off, and everybody would look. Everybody would turn. We would all investigate what crime is happening under our noses. And 99.9% .9 of the time, it was somebody that didn't know how to use their remote clicker thingy the jigger, and it was just, it was beeping. Fast forward to today, how many of us, when we hear a, call, a car alarm go off, do our hearts sink and we go, something bad is happening? We've been there, we've done that, we've got the t-shirt. Those, those car alarms don't even register anymore. And so the warning of Deuteronomy 18 is, well, don't treat the words of this prophet the way you treat a car alarm. Don't shrug them off. These are weighty words. These are eternal words. These are words that must be heard and heeded. Well, beloved, with Deuteronomy 18 ringing in our ears, I want us to see and savor this reality. Hear me well. Christmas is the fulfillment of God's promises here in Deuteronomy 18. Advent among other things, is the coming of Christ, He who is the promised prophet. In fact, in Acts chapter 3, Peter actually directly quotes this passage from Deuteronomy 18 and tells us that Christ is the fulfillment of it. So we are on good, solid, biblical ground. What I want to do then is explore a little bit how Christmas is the advent of Christ, this great prophet. To do so, let's return to those three S's. Remember, first of all, prophets are sent by God. And this was certainly true of Christ. Christ, He who is the eternal Son of God, took to Himself human nature and He became one of us, right? He was born into our world to be our faithful prophet. And God sent Him on this task. That was the purpose for which Christ came forth. He was sent by His Father. You will remember, this was the common response of those who were in Christ's presence. For example, in Luke 7, after Christ raised from the dead a widow's son, it is recorded this way, fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, what did they say? A great prophet has arisen among us. You see a similar reaction in John chapter 6. After the feeding of the 5,000, we read this, when the people saw the sign that He had done, they said, this indeed is the great prophet who is to come into the world. So there is no doubt 
based upon Christ's miraculous works, he is regarded as the bona fide prophet. Now at this point, we might be tempted, we might be tempted to think, well, fair enough, but that was merely the response of the fickle crowds of the day, and therefore they ought not to be trusted. After all, it is these same crowds who, towards the end of Christ's life, were yelling out, crucify him. So should we really take their words as any value here? Well, as I mentioned a moment ago from Acts chapter 3, Scripture presents Christ as the crescendo of God's revelation. Scripture itself testifies to the fact that Christ is the Mount Everest of prophets. Just think of how that sermon to the Hebrews begins. We are told long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So what was God doing throughout history? Well, He was speaking by prophets. But in these last days, Hebrews 1 says, He has spoken to us by His Son. Did you catch that? Throughout Old Testament history, God was speaking. And He was speaking by prophets. But now in Christ, God continues to speak. So that the Son of God, Hebrews 1, is the voice of the Father. God has spoken clearly and climactically through His Son to us, the church, in these last days. To, to, to really grasp something of the greatness and the glory of Christ as prophet, we would probably do well to think back again to Moses, the, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And Moses really was great. We know Moses was great because God Himself goes out of His way to extol Moses. Consider Numbers 12. Consider Numbers 12 where God showcases how unique Moses was by declaring this. With Moses, God says, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. That's Numbers 12.8. Or we could add that statement from the end of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 34. Where we read, And there has not arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So the point is that Moses stands in a league all his own. Most notably, he enjoyed what Deuteronomy calls a face-to-face -face relationship with God. Something that none of the other prophets before or after him enjoyed. Now, I need to say very quickly, as a caveat, that whole language of knowing God face-to-face -face is a figure of speech, one that is not to be taken literally. We know that is the case for at least two reasons. For starters, God is not a flesh and blood being as you and I are. To quote the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, God is invisible and has no body. Beloved, God doesn't have a face or eyes 
or ears or a nose like we do. When, when Scripture speaks to us in these ways, it speaks in what we call anthropomorphic language. That's a fancy way of saying that what Scripture is doing is employing human attributes to God to tell us something about God that makes sense to us. But none of this means that God literally has a face any more than God literally has wings. Even though in the Scriptures we are told that God will cover you with His pinions and under His wings you will find refuge. The other reason we know this figure of speech needs a seatbelt is because in other places, Scripture is adamant. Sinful creatures like you and I are not able to enjoy the presence of God this side of glory. And if exposed to God's unmitigated presence, His haunting holiness would eviscerate us the way lava does snow. So then how are we to understand passages like Numbers 12 and Deuteronomy 34? Well, I think the point of these passages, brothers and sisters, is to highlight something of the unique and tight relationship that Moses enjoyed with God. Specifically because Moses was the mediator of the Old Covenant. But Christ, the greater prophet and mediator of the greater covenant, he enjoys an even tighter and more intimate relationship with God. Unlike anyone else. Unlike even Moses. Speaking of that unique relationship, John 1.1 allows us to peek behind the curtain, as it were. You remember how John's Gospel account opens? We are told that in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So God and the Word, or we might say Father and Son, they have an eternal relationship. Catch the difference. The Word, unlike Moses, was in the beginning with God. God. There's more. Because John 1 testifies, and the Word was with God. And I will be quick to concede that that little preposition with might seem rather insignificant. But I assure you, there is more there than meets the eye. I say that because in Greek, the language in which the New Testament is written, John had uh, at least three options that he could have used for that term with. He could have said, and the word was soon God. In English, this comes to us as a prefix. Think of the word synagogue or synagogue, which literally is what? What is a synagogue but a together meeting. But that's not the language that John uses in his Gospel. Or he could have said that, that, the, that the Word was with God 
by using the word meta, which is also translated as with. So picture two people walking down the street side by side. They are walking meta each other. They're walking with each other. But there's still a third term, and this is the one that John uses. It's the Greek word pros, which forms the basis for another Greek word, prosopon, which means face. And the use of this with connotes a face-to-face relationship, which is the most intimate way in which people can, quote, be together. The point? Well, the picture that John is painting here in his gospel is that there is no more deep and meaningful relationship in all of existence than the relationship that exists within the very being of the triune God. More to the point here, specifically, the relationship that exists between the Father and the Son. They just don't get together like we do, and they're not even just sort of walking down the street at the same time together, but it is that deep and personal and intimate face-to-face relationship. So here's the point, lest we miss the forest for the trees. The advent of Christ is not merely the coming of another prophet, right? Another Moses or Elijah or Isaiah or Matthew. The point is this prophet is God's own unique son. If I can speak in this way, rather than God subbing it out to another prophet, God sends His own beloved Son to speak to us. Now, still thinking about Deuteronomy 18 and the coming of this prophet. Remember, Christ wasn't just sent by God, but He also spoke for God. And and those who heard Him had that reaction, didn't they? They were cut to their heart by His words. His preaching and teaching struck them deeply. They knew something was different. It's true, they weren't always able to to sort of put their finger on it, but they knew the words that they were hearing were not the words of a mere man, of of, of a normal rabbi. That's just one example. Recall how the crowds responded to Christ following what we call His Sermon on the Mount. We read this in Matthew 7, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching. For He was teaching them as one who had authority, notice this language, and not as their scribes. You hear that? Christ is different. He's different not just in what He says, but in also how He says it. His words carry more weight than the words of anyone else they've ever heard. But it wasn't just the crowds and their reaction that tip us off. Christ Himself claims to speak for God. You may remember when chiding the religious leaders of His day, Christ declared in John 5, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, Christ says, that bear witness about Me. 
And then just a few verses later, Christ adds, For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. You realize how nuts that is? Do you realize what Christ is saying? He's saying that all of the Bible, from Genesis to Malachi, they would say then, it's all about me. Even Moses, the greatest of great Old Testament prophets, was a servant of Christ. Because he spoke of Christ, the greatest of prophets. Now we have to ask, well, why is this the case? Why is Christ varsity level and all the other prophets JV? And the answer is because while every other prophet heard the word of God, Christ himself is the word of God. It's not just that Christ heard the word and then shared it, but he himself is the enfleshed word of God. It's the difference between one of those automated recordings that you get from your doctor's office to confirm an appointment and actually sitting down in the doctor's office and speaking with your physician face-to-face. These are are in entirely different categories. Christ is in a category all his own. This is perhaps made most clear by returning again to John 1. After declaring the unique eternal relationship of God and the Word prior to Genesis 1-1, John quickly fasts forward to the birth of Christ in space and time and history. Speaking of Advent, we read in John 1-14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the eternal Word of God has come to us. That's Christmas. But then just a few verses later, we are met with perhaps even a more staggering statement. This time John 1.18. John says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made him known. Now remember, we already made this observation when we thought about Moses and his interactions with God. To use our language, Moses might have caught a glimpse of God. We would say it was dusk. There was a a lot of shadows. Moses could maybe sort of catch an outline of God, if you like. But that's all. He didn't actually see God. Not in all of God's fullness. How do we know that? John is clear here. No one has ever seen God. Except one. You see, there is one who has seen God. There is one who reveals God. There is one who makes God known. And that one is the Lord Jesus Christ. Or as John identifies him here, the only God. That's nuts. What's even more nuts, I think, is the clause right after that. The only God who is at the Father's side. Literally in the bosom of the Father. John is saying, no mere human 
has ever seen God, but Christ. He who is the incarnation of God. He has seen God. He enjoys, John 1.1, an intimate and deep and profound and meaningful face-to-face relationship with God. And this one, because he sees God, because he knows God, but because he holds God, he then in turn can reveal God to us. In fact, this one is The relationship between father and son is so intimate and so deep and so tight, please don't miss this, that when Christ speaks, God speaks. When you see Christ, you see God. When you hear Christ, you hear God. The Son of God is the fullest revelation of God. Now given all of this, The third mark of a prophet shouldn't surprise us. Prophets are sent by God. Prophets speak for God. And remember, prophets are to be submitted to as God. And this is nowhere more true than when it comes to Christ. It is imperative that we hear and heed His words. Back in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, we are warned, It is to Him you shall listen. Verse 19 likewise warns us, And whoever will not listen to My words that he shall speak in My name, I Myself will require it of Him. Make no mistake about it, beloved. A quick and cavalier head nod will not suffice. Mere mental assent is not the aim. To reject the prophet is to reject God. And in this case, to reject Christ is to reject God. And we do so to our own peril. But why? Why must Christ be heard and heeded? Please hear this. Because He proclaims to us the greatest of newses. That's what Advent is, right? Advent is the coming of Christ to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And as Christ comes, He he dons the mantle of a prophet, as it were. And He comes to us and He prophesies. He comes to us and He preaches. Christ preaches to us the warmest and most wonderful sermons that we could ever hear. And that is because what Christ preaches to us is how He and He alone has come to make an end of all our sin. Think for a moment of Christ's most glorious and yet shortest of all the sermons He preached. As our much-needed prophet, He proclaims this message from a wooden pulpit from His cross. He cries out, it is finished. It is finished. That is to say, as Christ hangs there between heaven and earth, 
bearing the guilt of sinful man, he announces the debt of our sin has been paid. The condemnation that each and every one of you and I deserve, he endured himself. The very wrath of God provoked by my sin and yours was placated by Christ as He bore in His own body the judgment of God on that cross. Think about it this way. Up until this point, the holy God was tucked away deep inside the holy of holies. And if you stormed the castle, so to speak, you'd immediately be struck down. Why? Because you and I are sinners, and as sinners, we are not fit to be in God's presence. God is too holy. It would be like you and I attempting to walk on the surface of the sun. We would be immediately eviscerated by the glory and power and heat of God's holy presence. But then, on the cross, as Christ dies, He prophesies. He preaches. He announces to us again those three words. One word actually in Greek. It is finished. And what do the Gospel writers tell us? But in those very moments, the curtain in the temple is torn. And just in case we miss it, we are told that it is torn from top to bottom. So that now, in the wake of Christ's death, we can actually enter into God's presence. The Holy of Holies isn't tucked away over in this corner. It's now reaching out into all of the world through the Gospel. Again, it's not just that we can enter into God's presence. It's actually that in the Gospel we are welcomed. We are invited. God doesn't just tolerate us. He welcomes us into His presence. But that's not all. Christ, our great prophet, also announces good news as He walks out of the tomb on Easter morning. On the third day, Christ emerges in victory. And He does so specifically over death. That is what Easter means. Easter means that for you and I, death has died. Remember, the wages of sin is death. Romans 3.23 The soul who sins shall die. Ezekiel 18.20 Church, death is what looms large over every one of us as sons of Adam. And death is what we deserve. But Christ has died to deliver us from death. And in the same way that He rose up from the dead, He promises that so you and I will rise up from the dead. That's quite the sermon that Christ preaches as He walks out of that tomb. Now, lest we think that all of a sudden Christ goes mute after His resurrection. Remember that He then ascends into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father where He continues to preach. Revel in this redeeming grace. Christ's whole heavenly session is one of Him interceding on your behalf. Doubt me? Just listen for a moment to those glorious words from Romans 8. The question is asked, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 
Well, who was to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, hear this, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Where is Christ now? The Bible is clear. Christ is at the Father's right hand. What is Christ doing right now? The answer is even more clear. He is interceding on behalf of His people. On behalf of you. And on behalf of me. Hebrews 7.25 portrays a similar picture. We're told that Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Since He always lives, we are told, to make intercession for them. You catch that? Christ lives to intercede for you. Think about that. It's not just His duty. It's His utter delight. To, to speak in human terms, and I mean no disrespect when I say this, but, but interceding for you is what gets Christ out of bed in the morning. He loves you. He loves to love you. And one of the ways that He demonstrates His love for you is that He always lives to make intercession for you. Now this raises all sorts of glorious questions. Questions like, what might that intercession sound like? And we don't know exactly. But perhaps, perhaps something like, Father, they are mine. Father, these are those whom you have chosen from before the foundation of the world. They are mine, Father. And I have assumed their nature. I have become one of them so that they are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Father, we are so joined together that I am the head and they are the body. We are connected. And Father, as one of them, I have lived the perfect life before the law and I have merited righteousness for them. Father, as you know, I have died a sinner's death on their behalf, paying their debt. And in Your grace, Father, You have raised me up from the dead. You have brought me into Your presence. And so now, before You, I sit pleading on their behalf. Father, would You show them mercy? Father, would You sustain them? Would You love them? Would You encourage them? Would You supply them with the same Spirit that You supplied me with? And you know what? The Father delights in hearing those words. The Father delights to answer the prayers of His Son. I mean, just, just step back for a moment. Do you really think, for even a split moment, that the Father turns a deaf ear to the intercession of His own Son? Is that even possible? The Father truly delights in the intercession of His Son. And the Father truly delights in you. 
not because the Son made you lovable in the Father's sight. Remember, the Father sent Christ because He already loved us. Think about that. The whole of the Gospel is birthed from the womb of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loving you and I and desiring to pour out grace upon us. Given that, do we really think that the intercession of the incarnate Son of God is going to fail? For you or for me? Never. Never. Brothers, sisters, zoom out with me for a moment. As you do, ask yourself this question this Advent season. What was the purpose of the prophets? Why do they exist? If I can put it in these terms, what problem were they designed to fix? And the answer lies in recognizing something of our fallen and depraved state. Because of our sinful condition, we have blind eyes and hard hearts and deaf ears. And this is why God sent prophets. Because prophets raise their voice, they speak the Word of God, and through their ministry, eyes are made to see, hearts are inclined to obey, and ears are granted the ability to hear. Well, this is why Christ has come. He is the perfect prophet. And He has come to us on Christmas morning. Remember, He was sent by God. He spoke forth the Word of God. And we are called to submit to Him as God. And that's again because Christ is the Father's mouthpiece. So to end where we began, as we slow down this Advent season, I would invite you, I would plead with you to reflect. To reflect upon Christ. To reflect upon the very Word of God enfleshed in Jesus of Nazareth for you. And may your reflection birth reverence. Redeeming grace, praise God for sending Christ. Exalt Christ for bringing us the Gospel. And delight in the Holy Spirit. He who has opened our eyes to see the good news of Christmas. You see, reflection and reverence. Reflection and and reverence. That's the rhythm of Advent. And the music playing in the background is God's grace. Father, we come before You this morning asking that You would move in our hearts by Your Holy Spirit. Move in us to be a people who would be drawn toward Christ. That we would truly reflect upon Him. Reflect upon the manger. Upon the wonder of the Gospel. And that we would find our affections and our hearts more fully delighting in Christ. 
We read in the Psalms, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. That is our prayer this morning and the entirety of this Advent season. Cause us to be a people who are joyfully satisfied in Jesus. We pray these things for our good and for your glory in his name. And God's people said together, Amen.